You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 407, Valiant. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every episode of Star Trek, trying to find the morals, meanings, and messages contained within, and see if they stand the test of time. And we do so each and every week without the use of stimulants. This week, speak for yourself, this week, Valiant, the episode where Nog and Jake are saved from certain doom by the crew of the Valiant and find themselves at odds again. But this time, it cost Nog a whole lot more than ten bars of gold-pressed latinum. But before we get into trivia, here are several ways you can break radio silence to contact and stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, here is John Champion, who will give us his most valiant summary for this episode's trivia. I will do so defiantly. So, trivia for this week's episode, Valiant. It was written by Ronald D. Moore. He gets the story and teleplay credit here. We're returning to an idea that Ron and others on the staff, particularly Iris Stephen Bear, had kicked around for a while. That what if they encountered a ship that had been lost for some time during the Dominion War, and now we have all these battle-hardened soldiers doing things their own way. Then, what if we made them kids, and then what if we put our own crew with them? At first, it was to be Jake and Kira, but they wisely decided to go with Jake and Nog, since it was hard to believe that Kira wouldn't just go in there and set things straight. It was directed by Michael Vijar, and we're in the middle of Mike's seven-episode run on DS9. Most recently of his, we covered Rocks and Shoals. Hey, we're back on the USS Shenandoah. Good to see that runabout back after Dax and Worf made use of it in Change of Heart. And I will point out that it it looks like, to me anyway, uh, some new angles filmed in the cockpit, uh, or maybe the DP was using a different lens to give it a little roomier feel, but uh, I enjoyed seeing a new angle on it this week. And uh, we're back on the Defiant. Well, this time masquerading as the Valiant. Ron Moore loved the name Valiant and originally wanted that to be the name of the ship that Cisco gets, but... Voyager was about to start production at the time, and they were all told no ships that start with the letter V on DS9. The sets are the same, though, with the exception of changing the color scheme on some of the wall panels of the Valiant to a deep red as opposed to the Defiance more blue-gray. 
And uh, then they did a lot of practical explosion effects on those sets. Let's talk about our guest stars. It's time to meet the Red Squad. There's Lieutenant Shepard, who we first encountered way back on Earth in Season 4's Paradise Lost. Then and now, he's played by David Drew Gallagher. We meet Ferris, played by Courtney Peldon. Courtney started acting at a very young age, appearing on TV by the age of five and landing a regular gig on the TV version of Harry and the Hendersons by the time she was 10. Recurring gigs popped up on Home Improvement and Boston Public later in her career, and Courtney does a lot of voice work for animated series as well as in features. There's acting Chief Petty Officer Dorian Collins, played by Ashley McDonough, and we're actually catching her at the very last on-screen credit in her resume, just one guest spot and one TV movie predate DS9 for Ashley. Finally, Captain Waters is played by Paul Popovich. Canadian-born Paul got his start on screen in his teenage years and quickly found recurring roles on shows like Beverly Hills 90210 and The Hardy Boys. He even had a long run on TNG. Uh, that's not Star Trek, but rather Degrassi, the next generation for those of you following high school dramas. He turns up on The Expanse and in features and independent horror like 2016's Rupture. This is Paul's only Star Trek appearance. Hey, John, I have to make a mention of this. I usually don't jump into trivia unless I have something important to contribute. But I'm glad that they scrapped the working title for this episode and used Valiant instead. What, what, what was the working title? I don't think I uh, found that in my trivia notes. It was Star Trek Deep Space 90210. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't go with that one either. Now that we know the story behind how the Defiant ended up not being the Valiant, ask yourself this. Is the crew of the Valiant really Valiant, or are they Defiant? Prologue. Quark is up to his lobes and drowning in a sea of unhappy customers as his drink replicator is on the fritz with no Chief O'Brien or Rom or even Nog to come to his rescue. Odo meanders in and offers Quark his sympathies in the form of insults to Quark's financial injuries. Shortly after, Dax makes a welcome yet puzzling appearance and strides behind the bar, heading for the malfunctioning replicator. It turns out that Nog and Jake are off station heading towards Ferenginar, and Jadzia is covering for Nog to repay a favor. Quark is beside himself, muttering to Odo that this kind of menial work is beneath someone as remarkable as Jadzia. Odo realizes that Quark is in love with Dax, and can't help but jab Quark in the fields, remarking that it must kill him to know she's married to a Klingon. What is Quark left to do but to get back to work, as difficult as that may be, while longingly staring at Dax for so many reasons? Meanwhile, on a runabout departing Starbase 275, Nog and Jake are engaged in their usual argumentative banter. Nog has orders to deliver a diplomatic pouch to the Grand Nagus, but Jake, ever the intrepid reporter, wants an interview with Zek for the Federation News Service. But that will have to wait, because soon after leaving Federation space, they come across a Jem'Hadar attack fleet and try and slip past them as one of the Jem'Hadar fighters breaks off and gives chase. Act 1 Unable to turn back to the safety of Starbase 275, Nog tries to outrun the lone Jem'Hadar attack ship, but pushes further into Cardassian space. Deciding to turn and fight, and suffering heavy damage, Nog is out of options. And if matters couldn't get worse, another ship approaches. 
but it's not an enemy ship. Jake believes that it's the Defiant, but Nog sensors declare that it's the same class, but a different registry number altogether. NCC-74210, USS Valiant. Suddenly Jake is injured from an exploding control panel, and as Nog tries to attend to his fallen friend, they are miraculously beamed off the doomed runabout in the nick of time. Upon arriving on the Valiant, Nog and Jake are greeted by a very, very young cadet. Well, not technically a cadet, but a chief, Dorian Collins, whose Red Squad insignia catches Nog's attention. As they are introduced to the bridge crew, who are all wearing standard cadet uniforms, Nog is astonished that this is THE Red Squad, the most elite cadre of cadets in Starfleet Academy, that he so desperately wanted to join when he first enlisted. Acting Captain Tim Waters introduces himself and explains to Jake and Nog that he was given a battlefield commission by the late Captain Ramirez, and thus Waters promoted his fellow cadets accordingly. Chief Collins then sees to Jake's injury, while Nog offers First Officer Ferris his expertise to improve the Valiant's underperforming warp drive. In sickbay, Chief Collins tells Jake that the Valiant was on a shakedown cruise with seven regular officers and 35 cadets. Red Squad is offered such luxuries because of their elite status at Starfleet Academy. Meanwhile, in his ready room, Captain Waters explains to Nog that the original seven officers on board were killed during engagements with Dominion, and their radio-silent mission to collect technical data on a new Dominion battleship is one that he's determined to see through. Seeing that Nog is an asset to this mission, Captain Waters promotes him to acting chief engineer. But Nog has doubts. However, all of those are put aside once Captain Waters hands him what Nog has wanted so desperately for so long, the Red Squad insignia pin. Act 2. After healing Jake's injuries, Chief Collins takes him to the mess hall, which is filled with Red Squad cadets, many of whom give Jake rather unwelcoming stares. Collins sits with Jake after replicating him a Ractagino, and Jake starts in on some light conversation. Collins is what Jake's grandfather Joseph calls a lunar schooner, someone born on Luna, or rather, Earth's moon. Collins lets down her guard and wistfully talks about her home and family on Tycho City, especially watching the sunrises with her father. Feeling flustered with emotion, Colin abruptly excuses herself and returns to duty. In engineering, it seems that Waters' confidence with Nog's technical expertise was well-placed, as Nog's engineering methods, unorthodox by Ferris's standards, is able to push the warp engine successfully to warp 4. After leaving engineering, Waters enters sickbay and makes haste towards a medicine cabinet to grab some pills. After taking them, he notices Chief Collins sitting there, struggling emotionally and admitting to feeling homesick. Soon after, Jake is escorted by Collins to the captain's ready room, where Waters and First Officer Ferris are waiting for him. Ferris warns him to tread carefully, as his presence is affecting the morale of the crew, especially Collins. However, the captain tries to persuade Jake to focus on the significance of what this mission means and how this crew of cadets are contributing to the war effort. Jake is skeptical of the captain's motives, and after Jake leaves, the captain downs another handful of pills, assuring his first officer that everything is fine. Act 3. Jake finally reconnects with Nog and is surprised to see him wearing the Red Squad insignia on his collar. Jake remarks that all of this is moving a little too fast, but Nog, feeling a little defensive, retorts that captains have to make quick decisions. 
Suddenly, Ferris declares battle stations and for all crew to report to their posts. The Valiant sensors have finally located their white whale, and the captain orders for a probe to gather the necessary intelligence needed to prepare for their eventual attack on the Jem'Hadar battleship. Later in the mess hall, a very strident and confident Captain Waters addresses his crew. He informs them that their original mission, to seek out and locate this advanced Jem'Hadar warship, has been completed. But he also informs the crew that their data has discovered a weakness in the ship's design that can be exploited. However, the mission isn't without its risks, and they will have to get extremely, extremely close to the warship in order for their specially modified quantum torpedoes to be effective. And to bolster the morale of the crew, the captain presents them with the challenge of destroying this enemy ship rather than risking the lives of another Federation ship and crew that may encounter this behemoth later on. Unable to contain himself, Jake speaks up and says that his father, a known and respected tactical strategist, wouldn't even attempt this mission with a single ship and without seasoned officers and combat veterans manning their posts. To which Captain Waters responds, We are Red Squad, and we can do anything. As the crew, Nog included, chants at the top of their lungs, Red Squad! Red Squad! Red Squad! Act 4. In engineering, Nog is hard at work modifying the quantum torpedoes in order for them to deliver a specific tactical payload that will cripple the Jem'Hadar battlecruiser. Jake, on the other hand, is trying to convince Nog that this is a suicide mission under the command of a compromised and egotistical cadet who is under the influence of stimulants. Nog responds defensively, being personally and professionally insulted, saying that Starfleet uses words like honor, code, loyalty, as the backbone of a life spent defending something. Jake, you use them as headlines. And Captain Waters, watching from a remote screen in his ready room, has seen all he needs to see, because right after Jake leaves engineering, right after Nog angrily yells at him to get out, Jake is arrested at phaser point and thrown into the brig. With Jake silenced and confined to a holding cell, the rest of the Valiant's crew makes ready for their eventual confrontation with the Jem'Hadar warship. Hatches are battened down, and all preparations are at the ready. Captain Waters addresses his crew one final time and reminds them that this moment will never come again. Hold on to it. Savor it for as long as you can. Your Starfleet. Your Red Squad. And with that, the Valiant heads towards their fate at Warp 6. Act 5. As the Valiant is detected by the Jem'Hadar warship, it drops out of warp and turns to engage the far smaller Federation vessel. The size of the Jem'Hadar ship gives the Valiant's crew a great deal of pause, but Captain Waters steals himself and his crew and orders a high-speed frontal attack to avoid enemy weapons lock. Nevertheless, the Valiant's approach causes them to suffer heavy damage, rocking the Valiant and making it nearly impossible to achieve weapons lock of the Jem'Hadar warship's weak point. But Ferris remained focused and takes her best shot at the underbelly of the beast, and the crew cheers as the warship explodes, cascading into fireballs, exactly as Captain Waters hoped would be the case. Hoped, that is. Even though Ferris confirmed that the torpedoes hit their intended target directly and precisely, it appears that they just impacted on the surface. The tactics were right, they just didn't work. And that was a reality that Red Squad has never experienced. Outgunned, outmaneuvered, and out of options, 
the once confident and poised cadre of elite cadets began to falter, and their only pillar of strength, of leadership, and their only hope of making out of this desperation is, or rather was, Captain Waters, whose console exploded, launching him backwards from his command chair and killing him. But he wasn't the only loss. As the warship bombards the Valiant with volley after volley of weapons fire, the once-proud Defiant-class starship is reduced to a lifeless, hulking mass of twisted metal. Nog, being the only senior officer alive, orders a full evacuation of all remaining crewmen. He escorts a very disoriented and injured Collins to the escape pods, but not before making a quick detour to free Jake from his holding cell. As the escape pods jettison from the remains of the Valiant, three out of the four are destroyed by enemy fire, leaving only Nog, Jake, and Collins as the only survivors to have escaped this massacre, and whose escape pod's distress beacon was later picked up by the Defiant, looking for Jake and Nog's missing runabout. Safely aboard Deep Space Nine, and being treated in the infirmary, Jake and Nog reconcile their differences and come to terms with what they have just survived. Nog encourages Jake to write this story, so that the Valiant, her crew, and especially her captain, would be remembered for posterity, especially the final act of Captain Waters, who, quote-unquote, led them over a cliff, as the crew blindly followed him. However, Collins, from her sickbed, defends her captain, confessing that if her captain failed, that was only because his crew failed him. To which Nog sincerely and compassionately replied, he may have been a hero, he may even have been a great man, but in the end, he was a bad captain as he handed Collins his Red Squad pin. The end. Red Squad, Red Squad, Red Squad, ah, said with such passion and vigor. Thank you, mm. Norman, for that uh, for that recap. I appreciate it. Uh, more than a few things to uh, pick apart here, but uh, I guess we'll have a little fun with it right from the top. So uh, what do you got? What observations what? can you share with us? I like at the very beginning that we start off on a little lighter note, and I, I like that it kind of uh, echoes what uh, Quark was doing to Odo in his way when Quark was pointing out to Odo that you got to come to terms with your feelings for Kira, and now Odo's kind of jabbing him back like their relationship is, and he's saying, hey, you got to deal with your feelings for Jadzia because they are pretty much like front and center here. <laughs> I, I kind of have mixed feelings about that scene, honestly. Like, I, so I like this more sensitive, more humorous Odo. He, he's letting it come out. He's sharing it with other people more so. Although, you know, he and Cork have had a laugh every now and then, which is uh, which is kind of fun. Um, I'm not really sure that I dig the whole thing about Cork and Bashir. So let's not forget him. Love for Dax, because uh, Bashir's love for Dax is what Cork used against him in that uh, Tongo game. Um, I, I don't know how invested I am in that anymore, um, and I don't know if uh, what I, you know, what Quark has for Dax. I don't know if I would call that love necessarily. I just feel like in the last six years we've spent so much time on who has the hots for Dax. It's time to just let her be in this terrible relationship with Worf for a little while now. Just let that play out, see where that goes. The Quark thing, that that's not going to go anywhere. So, uh, Odo, why keep bringing it up? Uh, unless it is maybe just to needle Quark, but that's a sort of a known thing. So, John, you know I've been bringing a couple of John Hughes references up of late. 
because there are John Reeves references totally plenty in the last couple of episodes. Yes. But Quark here is kind of like the Eric Stoltz character in some kind of wonderful kind of pining after the Leah Thompson character as Dax. So there's a very kind of unrequited love John Hughes kind of moment. I there. see. I see that those feelings don't go away easily. So I, I, I get it. I, I just feel like, you know, we've sort of turned a corner and and now we're trying to figure out how this Odo Kira thing is working. I don't really picture a future there for Quark and Dax, uh, but maybe I'll get surprised. Maybe, maybe that's something that I'm just not expecting yet. Now, here's a weird thing with technology, though. So. The replicator's on the fritz, and Quark, being the seasoned bartender that he is, has a hard time mixing drinks. I know maybe they get flustered yeah. you know, when you have to actually physically service people like that. But why not just go somewhere else and have a replicator, like, port it in? Yeah. There are other replicators, like, in people's yeah. suites or on ships. Just They had a portable replicator when Odo and Quark crashed that's on a runabout. Just, just bring one of bring those. That. <laughs> Into the bar, makes, and then you're done. That makes total sense. You, you, you've got, uh, hopefully, you could have a bartender who can mix a drink. Uh, you got Impella there who maybe can mix a drink or two. We haven't seen Lita in a while. Maybe she can mix a drink. You know, there, there are other people who can mix drinks. And, and again, like, how difficult is it? it it's, it's just information in a computer. Like, somebody could just walk mm. up and go, I want that drink. And then the computer makes it. So, yeah. I swear, if that, if that Odo lost his pad... He'd be done for. You would. Speaking of controls and pads and technology, when did Jake become so freaking good (laughs) at using shuttle controls? Like to the point where he can actually do them under fire. He he has no interest in being in Starfleet. And I really respect that about this show. I love the fact that we have a major character who is just not doing the obvious thing, which is, oh, this is the captain's son. He's going to go to the academy. I love that he has a life of his own. But yeah, he's really good at that. And and I'll even jump to the end. And, you know, when he's in the brig and they're taking fire, he's he's not calm. But I will say he is way calmer than I would be during the same situation. So he, he's got skills that uh, have been so far untapped on this show. Wait, wait, yeah. wait, John. Are you saying that experience allows people to make more rational and more measured decisions because of what they have experienced in the past to inform those decisions. Is that what you're saying? So maybe just uh, being educated in a classroom isn't all you need to actually have the skills that you need to get through life. These are all maybe interesting things that might come up in today's show. Oh, oh, by the way, uh, speaking of Jake, I... I I tend to point out whenever we have a very effective but old-school practical effect on this show, like sometimes they'll do it with replicators. And in this case, we have an old-school, very easy effect done in sickbay. When Jake is having his wound treated by Dorian, first of all, if you go back and rewatch that scene, why is there smoke coming off of that little device in her hand, or or maybe it's off of his arm, but this is weird either way. Um, but there's a very simple, uninterrupted tracking shot with the camera going around Jake, and it never stops. And then Jake's clearly wounded arm is lowered, and then when he lifts it again, it's fine, no wound. And obviously there's a stunt arm in the first part of the shot, but it totally works. That's such a good little effect to have in there. They did it right. 
You love practical effect I shots. I do because I mean we 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 give so much attention to like um, oh you, you know how either CG was used to completely create a scene or enhance a scene with something you couldn't ever do practically, and when you do something like this, it is just old school stage trickery. That's all it is. The camera's mm -hmm. only seeing this much, but the camera's got to move. And instead of doing the obvious thing, which is to do a cut and then do the insert of Jake's arm, no, 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 no. Keep the camera rolling. Keep it going. And let's just bring in a stunt arm to do this. I love it. I love it. Now, oh, oh uh, one thing that I will point out is that on the Valiant, yes, it is all uh, Red Squad. I want to know, if they don't have a full crew complement who is the chief officer in charge of branding? Because somebody went way above and beyond branding that ship with Red Squad everywhere all the time. Put up that giant logo. Good thing they have replicators because uh, they're getting, you know, getting a lot of work making those uh, branding I mean, I, signs. I know that we're making light of it, but when you really think about it, the Valiant was a training vessel with seven experienced officers on board and 34 cadets. Mm -hmm. So why isn't that logo, especially the one in Waters Quarters, that gigantic yeah. one, why isn't that USS Valiant? Yeah, I know. I know. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, it's so strange that it was something so uh, self-serving on this ship. I mean, gosh, so strange and out of character they for them. Did they just like beam that on board somewhere? It's like, hey, guys, we really need to get our flag up here. So, you know, it's our ship now. Yeah. And I know, again, we're making light of it. But there's one time, though, I remember in uh, Paradise Lost when they were talking about Red Squad. And I saw the logo. And I'm like, wow, what a really well-designed logo. Yeah. I wanted the pin. I wanted the T-shirt. I wanted the mug. I want all of it. Now I'm not so sure, to be honest yeah, with you. I, I think that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. Because then you're kind of playing either the bad guy or the deluded guy. Ooh, oh, wait, I don't want to jump to the ending there. Later. Yeah, okay, all right. I did. I really like that little bit about the moon when uh, Jake and Dorian were having that conversation in the mess hall. And I just wondered, like, wait, was this something that Ron Moore was trying to make happen in the pop culture, like trying to get people to call it Luna? Because I don't think they will. It, it is still our moon. Um, so that, that was a fun little bit of dialogue. And, and I thought a lovely description of hiking out to watch the sunrise on the moon and, and then just to wait and watch the eagles crash and explode when they're dumping off radioactive nuclear waste. That, that really, it painted a picture for me. thought it was nice. I'm pretty sure she knows exactly where every one of Koenig's crashes yeah, was. Yeah, on yeah the and there are many. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> there are many. Are there more than Allen's though? <laughs> right. that's, that's the real right. question. There's this one scene where I couldn't help but laugh out loud, not because it was a funny scene, but it was so ironic. So Jake's on the bridge. He was literally told by the captain only moments ago to not interfere, but to observe and write down everything that you see. Mm -hmm. And then Ferris said, after Jake says something around like the, the, the tune of, won't they spot the probe? And she said, I don't remember anyone inviting you to the bridge. That's exactly what the captain was saying. Right. He's like, I want you to be everywhere to observe. Right. <laughs> Ferris just hates Jake. I know. That, 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 that's it. Like, he's right there doing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, Crazy. and all the, all, the other ca the, the, um, all the other cadets, too. If you're not in a cadet uniform or in a Starfleet uniform, yeah. you had eyes on you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You weren't part of the system. You were part of the right. problem. Oof. 
that hippie Jake, <laughs> you know, and his peace mongering. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, and uh, I think that after watching the episode, it was a really well-delivered line, but it was sadly prophetic mm-hmm. where where Waters said, this moment will never come again. Hold on to it. Savor it for as long as you can. Your Starfleet, your Red Squad. That's a great pep talk. That's a great inspirational line. But it didn't really turn out that no. way. No. Yeah. Hold on to it for as long as you can is really like the next 90 seconds. And then yeah. that's it. Yeah. Rarely do we get to see a montage in Star Trek. And the montage of overlaid scenes and seeing the, the crew prep. It's kind of like in Star Trek too when they were about to go to battle in the Mutara Nebula and yeah. you see the, the crew pull up the grates and the photon torpedoes getting launched. And in this one, you get to see Ferris and do her thing and Collins do her thing. I really, really, really wanted that song, You're the Best. You know, <laughs> You're the best around. Nothing's ever going to keep you down. I wanted that song from the Karate Kid to be playing right then and oh, there. There's an man. actual lyric that I remembered. It said, fight till you drop, never stop. Can't give up till you reach the top. And everyone at the, in the chorus yells, fight. It's kind of like <laughs> Red, Red Squad. Squad. Yes, yeah. Right? Uh, see, I, I'm going to bring the contrary opinion here. I, As you pointed out, montages are not a thing that we get very often in Star Trek. This one took me completely out of the story. It, it was such a visual change and such a tonal change from what we had. It just mm-hmm. pulled me right out of the episode. Uh, like just Dorian very with this very concerned look on her face, just switching on phasers, walking down the, the line like that. That just seemed like, is that a good use of anybody's time here? Um, putting things in a cabinet. Uh, it, it was it was just a strange choice, very out of step with uh, Star Trek stylistically up until now. And, and I kept wondering, could Ron not write another 15 seconds of really critical dialogue that be- would belong in that moment? It just said, well, well, no, we, we ran out of words. Now we need, a, now we need a, a montage. But you know what? I actually took it this way. I took it that these are just kids – and they're going through like all the different training sequences that they're used to in, in, you know, like kind of prepping for inspections at the academy. That's kind of like how I took this. They're not combat veterans. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're just trying to clean up their quarters to make sure everything's ready for the big battle. I'll, I'll take that literally then a step further and say that somebody put on the music and that was happening in real time as we we're seeing it mm-hmm. in the episode. Because they they were like, I saw this in a training video one time. It was a montage. Somebody put on that song. Let's have our own. They should have used they my should song. Have. The licensing was too much, though. <laughs> so the uh, the attack scene where the Valiant strafes the Jem'Hadar battlecruiser. I mean, that was like straight out of the last Starfighter, where Alex Rogan just attacks the Codian warship. Yeah, yeah, and looks for that giant mm-hmm. like uh, the giant communications yep. pod. Yeah. yeah, that was good stuff. Love yep. that. I usually like mentioning favorite scenes when I actually do have a favorite scene. In this episode, my favorite scene is when Jake says to Nog, I don't even know who you are anymore. And then Nog said, I'm the chief engineer of the Starship Valiant. And he says it with such pride. Yeah. Right? And then Jake says, I'll have them put that on your tombstone. Wow. Sick burn, Jake. I love it. Uh, That was uh, a good bit of dialogue. Now, since in the bed, this doesn't exactly count, but since we have pointed out before Deus Ex Machina, and sometimes it's egregious use in Deep Space Nine, I found the ending of the story to be uh, strange. 
Um, literally every other escape pod is either shot down by the Jem'Hadar or just explodes upon launch. It, that that just I, I feel terrible for the people in that one. The one, the only one that makes it is the one with Jake and Nog and Dorian, because well, Jake and Nog we still have to have more DS9. And the one ship that's out there to pick it up is the Defiant. Now, granted, Captain of the Defiant has good reason to be out there looking, but it just happens that they find it right away. So that that was a uh, it was a little maybe too neat of a bow on the end of that. But I did have to ask myself, you know, after we've seen the tragedy of the failure of Red Squad and the mission of the Valiant, uh, what if they had chosen to write it in a different way? And uh, what if what if they'd made it back home? Like, what would that briefing look like if uh, the entire crew makes it back home and it's eight months later and they'd done all of this stuff and then they meet with their superior at Starfleet Academy? What does that conversation sound like? Because I think it would be something more like, you were gone for how long and your captain was dead for what part of that? What is wrong with you? How do you and all of you feel about a career in not being on a starship? Because we have that available to you. Hey, Red Squad kids, listen up. You know what makes you sound less creepy and culty than chanting Red Squad over and over again? Try chanting Lower Decks, Lower Decks, Lower Decks. Hey, we'll get right back to Valiant in just a moment. But first, a quick shout out and a thank you. To all of our listeners who have joined us at Patreon. You know, Norman, we have really gone to great strides to build what we're doing at Patreon in the last several months, uh, made some changes there with new merchandise, new support levels, and really giving people content and a community to come visit and share with us online. And wait till our Patreon squad pins oh, come no. out. Oh, oh boy, no. they're going to look amazing. <laughs> Patreon, Patreon, Patreon. 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 Now, uh, all joking aside... I am I am moved um, moved beyond belief sometimes when I see new people sign up for Patreon, supporters support even more on Patreon, and people just engage in the Discord that we have on Patreon and build a community that uh, I think John, you and I are just extremely proud of because it's just such a welcoming and thoughtful, intelligent, and very supportive community, and that's something I think that will stand the test of time, and I think that's something that future Patreon supporters will find very valuable to them, especially our live conversations. Yeah, there's a whole community going on there, and that's 24-7, whether it's the chat in Patreon or the uh, the live video audio feedback that we do after episodes drop. So there's a lot happening over there. There's a lot happening, not just the early access to our unedited, unexpurgated shows, which you also get every week, uh, two weeks early uh, before an episode comes out. So check us out at patreon.com slash mission log. And I do want to say thank you to some of our newest patrons, Benjamin, David, Terry, Deanne, Alan, Troy, Star, and Barbara. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you to everybody who has supported us there at Patreon. And thank you, everyone, for continuing to just build that fantastic community. If you'd like to learn more about it, if you'd like to see what we're all about, and if you're new to it, please visit patreon.com slash mission log. You'll find all of the perks available there. Again, that address is patreon.com slash mission log. 
All right, Norman, here we go with our valiant attempt to pick apart Valiant. Uh, hey. hey. <laughs> um, this, I, you know, one of the interesting themes here uh, to me is faith, belief, dedication, uh, however we want to phrase this and, and maybe split some hairs here. But we've talked many times in Mission Log about DS9's attempts to examine religious faith. And you, you have that baked into the whole premise with what's going on in Bajor and when we get visited by people like Kai Wen. Uh, but here we have a different kind of faith on display and one that is explored. Captain Dudebro, I, I, I'm sorry, Captain Waters. Oh. Yeah, Captain Waters. Um, he's, to me, essentially a cult leader. He manipulates his followers in a number of ways with charm and alignment with their interests and their aspirations, inspiration of the people around him. We really see that play out with Nog, and that was a, a good choice to have Nog in that position and be starry-eyed about his opportunities. And then Waters turns that into fear and intimidation and emotional manipulation, how tragic that was to see him use that against uh, Dorian. And you can only imagine how many other times that's played out before. He really brings it all. He, he's really bringing all of these attributes of a cult leader, the, this cult of personality around him. And I think that's one of the most horrifying aspects of an episode like this, of a character like that. You know, there was something that I always felt that was off about this whole aspect and presentation of Red Squad, it just seemed a little unbalanced to me because Red Squad is supposed to be this elite cadre of the best and brightest of Starfleet Academy. These are going to be probably your fast-tracked commanders or captains or people that will lead teams for scientific exploration or they're going to become like almost um, automatic like first officers. These are These are people who are being groomed as Nog said, they're given the best equipment. They're given the, the rarest opportunities. But these are supposed to be intelligent cadets. They're supposed to be cadets that have incredible aspirations. They probably have incredible intellects, choose to question things that may or may not be the status quo because it helps them evolve as students and as potential leaders. Isn't that what you would want from your cadets? And instead, all we see are cadets that are willing to tow the mantra of just a chance. And we don't really get to see, aside from one very wonderfully acted personal story, we don't get to see why Red Squad is motivated to do what they do. And that is a hugely lost opportunity for the the whole narrative of Star Trek. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to kind of chalk this up to a fate. I mean, I, I think what you're talking about is this lost opportunity for the episode or for the backstory in in what we see here of Red Squad. I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna chalk it up in universe to a failing of Starfleet. I mean, these are the best and the brightest, but they haven't learned things like. Empathy, ethics, moral decision-making, how to recognize bad command decisions, how to look out for each other. This list could go on and on. And what I have in mind at Starfleet is that you do all that stuff before they let you even near a starship. 
uh, just because mm-hmm. of the stakes that are at play there. So, yeah, there's there's this huge missing element. Like, I really like and appreciate the idea of figuring out what happens to this group of people when they're cut off, or in this case, they have decided to be cut off. They didn't have to be. Let's let's remember that. And what happens when the war has raged from their specific set of experiences? That's all very interesting stuff. But at a certain point, somebody's got to pay the price. Tragically, they did by all dying, by following the wrong guy. When you're talking about Red Squadron, I'm thinking about Nova Squadron. I'm thinking about the first duty and our old friend Nick Locarno and uh, mm-hmm. Wesley Crusher on that team. And, you know, that was a group of kids who were full of hubris and courage and thought that they could show off. But then they failed and they had to get that reset. And the, at least they got the opportunity to get that reset, one who didn't to learn from that mistake and actually be better at the things that they went on to do. So mm-hmm. it's a very different set of circumstances here, but similar parallels there. Failure is probably one of the greatest teachers in the experience of life. Yeah. You have to be able to accept failures. You have to be able to understand why things didn't go your way. And you have to be able to give yourself the options of learning from those mistakes or succumbing to them again because you refuse to identify why you were there in the first place. And I think that that's, there's only one character that really gave us any, even a modicum of, a small modicum of opportunity to see that there were living, feeling, intelligent, questioning intellects in that entire cadre, and that was Collins. Mm-hmm. And what happened to her for showing yeah. emotion? Yeah. She was, she was uh, interrogated for it, and then she was... She was chastised for it. How dare you? Yeah. How dare you show emotions? We're Red Squad. Yeah. You know, we, we, we work like precision machinery. You're not a watch. Yeah. You're a person. Yeah. yeah. That, that speaks to the, the failure of command every step of the way. I mean, let, let me take because I'll come back to Collins in a minute. But, you know, look at the discussion that Captain Waters is having with Jake. You can do this. You just have to have faith in yourself and faith in your shipmates. And he has a point. Waters is right in that moment that he's pushing people to go beyond what they think their limits are. And this is probably an experience that every single one of them had, whether it's there on that ship or even at the academy, being pushed to be better than what they think they are. But then he says the the tragic, you know, five words after that, and everything will be fine. And that's Mm -hmm. where he's wrong. Because everything won't be fine, especially without accountability. So if you never have the opportunity to make a mistake, learn from the mistake, and then hold every everyone accountable who should be held accountable for that, you don't learn, you don't grow, you don't get better for the next time. And that's what's happening here. And that total lack of empathy, lack of humanity, which is from the top of that command structure down, which is completely at odds with the type of functional command that we've seen in the rest of Star Trek. So again, I have to wonder what is the message they've gotten at the Academy that has allowed them to evolve into this bastardized version of a Starship crew. It it, it all comes down to what uh, Collins, Dorian, says at the very end. If he failed, it's because we failed him. That 
is the voice of a brainwashed cult member who protects the cult at all costs. That is absolutely tragic. And while I'm at it, Jake, you do not need to put that in your story. Except maybe in the part that shows how brainwashed the crew really were. And to beg that this not ever be allowed to happen again. It's, I'm sorry, but to me, it's not a matter of letting people decide for themselves. It is a matter of very clearly pointing out the failures in how this crew developed as they did. And the, the tragic, horrible decisions made from the top down that then bullied and pressured people to follow those terrible decisions. That's the story that Jake needs to write. Something that had never really occurred to me when I was doing my notes, because I have a lot more to say about some other topics, mm-hmm. but exactly how is Starfleet going to explain away the death of 34 cadets? Yeah. Or 33 cadets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope they explain it away by telling the actual story. Fortunately, you've got Jake there to write that story. And, exactly. you know, we could go down a very dark path about Starfleet news and Starfleet intelligence, you know, either censoring or putting out incorrect or incomplete data, but at least there's a couple of people there who can tell the story from a somewhat more objective point of view. Yeah, like someone say, maybe Waters wrote back to his parents and said, I'm going to have to go radio silent, but as far as you know, I'm on a training exercise for the next X couple of months. Right, right. How is that going to be explained away? So I am glad that we bring up Jake on occasion here in our discussion, mm-hmm. because Jake, for me, he's like the Han Solo of this episode. Really? How, right? Okay. Because, All right. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with you here. What? What is this? Yeah. Okay. So when he and Nog had his discussion in, uh, I guess it was in the engineering room, and uh, it, it just reminded me of Luke and Han at the end of, of uh, episode four. Han said, attacking that battle station ain't my idea. Courage. It's more like suicide. Right? Uh, okay. And then Luke said, all right, well, take care of yourself, Han. I guess what you're best at, isn't it? Yeah. Right? There's yeah, this huge yeah, philosophy. Yeah. Like, like, Luke is like, he's really into wanting to attack this space station, like the giant Jem'Hadar battleship. Yeah. And he's willing to put on the uniform and put on the helmet and go into the ship and fight this suicidal battle against mm. all odds. And Han's like, what are you, out of your mind? Mm-hmm. Now, we know that Han changed his, his opinion. Course. But... Nog said this to Jake, and it's very similar. Nog said, you don't understand because you've never put on one of these uniforms. You don't know anything about sacrifice or honor or duty or any of the things that make up a soldier's life. I'm part of something larger than myself. All you care about is you. Mm -hmm. And Jake says, that's right. All I care about is Jake Sisko and whether or not he's going to be killed by a bunch of delusional fanatics looking for martyrdom. That is one of my favorite lines in the episode. Yes. He is so right because Jake has no choice in this matter. Yeah, right. Right? And every time he speaks up and tries to just insert any any common sense to anybody, he's either interrogated, chastised, or then eventually thrown into the brig. For speaking the truth yeah. or speaking his truth. I, which I loved. I mean, I, I absolutely love that moment where he is allowed to speak and he says, look, you know who my dad is. <laughs> this is something yeah. you would never do. Now, granted, that's not the best argument that you can make is, you know, presuming what somebody else would or would not do. But it should have held a little bit of sway. And, you know, the mm-hmm. biggest uh, I think the biggest difference with the the attack run on the Death Star is that you had 
quite a bit more intelligence, quite a bit more experience behind that decision, and uh, and at least some choices about who was going to go there and how it would be carried out. This is just like, look, you're all members of the cult. You will all do what I say. We'll say the magic words, Red Squad, Red Squad, Red Squad, over and over again. Therefore, we're committed to do this. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, yeah, but it just felt like it had that same energy. Because yeah, totally. I loved it when Jake said, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm worried about my own skin. Loved it. It's what covers my Love body, it. right? Love it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that's the Jake that I absolutely agree with. But one of the things that really kind of bugged me about, I guess, where, where Red Squad was in their training or the way that they've been conditioned how many times in Star Trek have we seen captains being countermanded or at least advised by their first officer? This is where I actually have probably one of the biggest problems with this whole Red Squad scenario. Ferris is terrible. Yes. She is a terrible, terrible yep. officer in 100%. training. 100%. Yep. Yep. Because all she does is care about whether or not the captain's health is, uh, is able to continue the mission and following his orders and making sure that everyone else follows his orders and her orders, or you get chastised, interrogated, or thrown into the yeah. brig. She is awful. Yeah. There was no, and I think, you know, we could put on our writer's hats and we could figure out what that scene is. There could have been a way to redeem her and give her a little bit of humanity, but she is acting inhumanely toward others and she's not acting like a starfleet officer that's the biggest yeah that is such a huge failing here And, and i think that could have been corrected relatively easily but the story is so concerned with the focus on waters and then of course jake and nog which makes sense but you end up with all these very two dimensional uh characters around waters who are just doing whatever he says I really think that Ferris and, and Collins should have been wrapped up in one character mm. so that you had a character at odds with the captain at times because Jake was making a, a very desperate plea for her to to drop this facade of just being this elitist cadet yeah. following orders and goes, remember, you can get back home. You can go to Luna. You can see these sunrises again. All you have to do is question the captain. Right. right. You know, or put that in your log. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we have Ferris, who's kind of like basically an enforcer, and you had Collins, who has a little bit more of a heart and soul. And I think that their characters never really, they never really developed into anything more than those particular lanes. Yeah. And I think that if they were one character, we could have seen so much more dynamic yeah. between the captain and Jake and Nog, and then that character. Agreed. S- speaking of Nog, though, I love you, Nog, as a character. <laughs> And I'm speaking to you in universe, yeah. but you remember that time that you served on the Defiant and then you punched through an entire Dominion line of ships and then made it to Deep Space Nine uh-huh. and then went into the wormhole and then stared down an entire Dominion fleet and watched them disappear? Uh-huh. You did that with Captain Sisko. Why are you sucking at the boots of these cadets now? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That. Seriously. Yeah, yeah that, that's very true. I mean, he theoretically has way more experience than these. So, I mean, yes, granted, the crew of the Valiant have been on board for eight months, but Nog has been out in the thick of it as well. Nog has served under Cisco. Nog has been on a, a working ship, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. He's the one who's gotten uh, uh, far greater experience in that respect. 
it's very strange that he would sort of supplicate himself to uh, the others around him in the way that he does. Um, but that's the the appeal of what he's being offered. It's like, well, if you keep your mouth shut and you do everything that we ask you to do, you get to put these pips on your collar and you get to put this logo on your collar and we're going to call you chief. You know, it, all this stuff that gets layered on, it sort of, it comes with that bargain, which is you mm -hmm. don't open your mouth because you see what happens when others open their mouths. And he's being kept busy enough that he doesn't even have the opportunity to raise an objection. It, it is very interesting that you know, Nog is the one who uh, who has given those attributes. One of the last things that I do, because I don't want it to uh, affect how I take my notes on an episode, one of the last things that I do before we record is look at Terry Erdman's book, Deep Space Nine Companion. And he had some interesting uh, quotes in there from Aaron Eisenberg talking about how he he was looking at at Nog's participation here as a Ferengi. Meaning, if you take that Ferengi attribute of just pushing through to get profit, no matter what, at all costs, you keep your eye on that as the goal, you follow those rules, that's where, that's where it leads you. He's saying, well, what if I applied that to Nog as the Starfleet officer? And in this case, that Starfleet officer, that you know cadet, uh, basically, is looking at how do I get the higher rank? If that's what it's all about, just how do I get the higher rank? How do I stay completely focused on that? The problem with this episode, though, is that we've seen Nog be so multifaceted. We've seen him grow so much and learn so much from everyone around him and see the best the best in action on the Defiant that it feels very out of place that he would so easily slip into that as part of this crew. I mean, it's essentially, I'm going to use a sports ball analogy, okay. but, I'd ever, but everyone knows this particular player because he is the goat of goats. It's Tom Brady, okay. right? So Tom Brady, it's like I graduated from college. I was first pick of the draft. I'm a wide receiver. I'm playing for the, well, now Tampa Bay. But Tom Brady threw a touchdown pass to me, and we won everything. And now I'm going back to high school to try out for the varsity team because I want that letterman's jacket so badly. Mm. You just won the Super Bowl, dude. And you want a letterman's jacket because that cult of personality was so deeply set in at one time, you can't shake but not looking to get to to strive for that brass ring, that pin that means really nothing anymore when you put it right next to a Super Bowl trophy. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Red Squad kids, like that cool collar pin that we spent lots of replicator resources to make? Get your own today. Send in three proofs of purchase and two catrisal white tubes to Captain Waters, care of USS Valiant. So we've done it, Norman. We've laid out our plans. We've had our eye on the prize. We've made our run. Now it's time to take that final shot. This is where we determine, does the episode hold up? And what did we learn from it? So I will pose it to you first. Valiant, Norman, does the episode hold up? So I just want to share a little bit of an anecdote here. At 
the first viewing, the very first time that I reviewed this episode, there was a very similar energy with Valiant to a movie that I really enjoyed watching years ago. Uh, it actually came out in 1981, and it's called Taps, if you remember that movie. The movie starred George C. Scott, Timothy Hutton in a very similar type of role as Waters. Sean Penn was in it, very young. Uh, Star Trek's very own Ronnie Cox, Captain Jellicoe was in the movie. And then a very up-and-coming Tom Cruise. If you haven't seen this movie, I highly recommend it. It was about military cadets taking extreme measures to ensure the future of their military academy when local condo developers were going to come in and, and uh, bulldoze it down to build up condos. That was very much like the same kind of energy I felt here in Valiant, where you had these hardcore, highly trained, elite cadets taking matters into their own hands. But the repercussions of those choices went completely the opposite way of what they expected. I'm so glad that you mentioned TAPS because I thought the same thing, and it has been ages since I've seen that movie. Uh, but yeah, Waters definitely has some strong uh, Timothy Hutton vibes. And mm -hmm. uh, yep, and, and that's just, it's another story where it's kids hearing adult ideas, but getting the wrong impression and taking it too far. And mm -hmm. that, that's what we have here. Yeah. Believing that those ideas are the ideas that they should live their life by and make their decisions by and not thinking for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and fight and die by. Yeah. Exactly. Now, on a positive note about what I did like about this episode, I thought, again, Sirach and Aaron were just fantastic. Their relationship as Jake and Nog is so well-developed. It's so full. It has a lot of agency. There's a lot of maturity in their characters. Their friendship is believable, especially when they're at odds with each other. And they continue to learn from each other. And they continue to do that despite their professional or their cultural or philosophical differences. I like at the end where he and Nog, it's not like, hey, I'm sorry, buddy, punch you on the arm. It's, okay, how do we get past this and move forward because we just saw them stuff go down, yeah. like big time. Yeah. How do we reconcile this and how do we move forward as friends intact? But overall, though, with this episode, I'm just very ambivalent about it because in, in many ways, I think that there is a space for the horrors of war story affecting a certain age group, a certain young version of like band of brothers, mm, you know, mm -hmm. when they have the, when they have the replacements come in and the, uh, the officers that jumped in Normandy don't give them the time of day. It's not because they don't like them. It's because they get torn up every single time a replacement gets killed in the line of duty. That is a good example of this kind of story. This isn't a great example. Uh, Valiant is not a great example of that similar type of energy. I think that it really works well on paper, quite honestly, yeah. and, and even as a story pitch, but it just doesn't really, it doesn't mature the way I wanted it to. It doesn't percolate the way I wanted it to. And in the end, it just is very hollow in its pursuits to try and tell the story I think they wanted to tell. Yeah. There's just something, there's some main ingredient that's missing, and I can't really put my finger on it. Uh, well, I'm going to be a little more harsh then <laughs> and, okay. um, and say that it, it really doesn't work for me. And I, I think one of the things you just pointed out that resonates with my take on this is, is that we're 
I think it's very interesting to explore this uh, culty uh, uh, psychological manipulation that's going on there, but we're missing anything from the other characters that is a pushback to that or any sort of humanity. And, and we stamp it out very quickly with Collins, but I think if we felt any of that with anybody else, we might have a little more empathy, a little more sympathy for what's going on here, but we just don't. So uh, let me start right away with my prejudices here. Um, there aren't too many kid-centric casts that I really love. I mean, uh, look, okay, The Goonies, Stand By Me, those are classics. <laughs> but for the most part, when you try to shoehorn a cast of kids into a known universe that is primarily populated by adults and adult stories and make them do adult things, I'm not there for it. There could be a very interesting way to explore this, where, which I just said to you, which is if we really go down that path of how things go wrong when, uh, it, you know, some adult ideals and aspirations get perverted and misunderstood and we see the problem with just the, the blind adoration and adherence to that ideal, th that could be some interesting space to explore there. I will also point out this, watching this episode now, 23 years after it came out, and seeing this cast, comparing it to the other casts that have been in episodes before it, where we've had young Starfleet cadets, this is a very white cast. Um, and, and I'm not here to make a big deal out of it, because it's not exactly what our show is about, but it did strike me to think, you know, if this show were being made right now, we would see a much more diverse group of young people in this training crew. Uh, so that just sort of stood out to me as looking very different from what my... Also very human cast. I mean, there were no other species aside from, what, one Vulcan? Yeah. I mean, even Wesley took his training exam with a Benzite. It would have been nice to have seen anybody who wasn't just either human or that one Vulcan. And uh, that one Vulcan should have spoken up, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, honestly, this episode might land somewhere near the top of the list of episodes that I do not like. And that list will feature episodes from all over the place thematically. I, and, and look... I'm going to agree with you here that on paper, that's where this episode is strongest. I certainly understand and appreciate what they were trying to do here, but it feels like a huge distraction from the rest of DS9. And one of the things that you need in order to follow a story is an emotional investment in the characters. And there was nobody on the Valiant who earned that from me. Yes, I like Jake and Nog a lot, but I feel like any growth or development here was something that we had either already done or could have been accomplished in a better, more productive way with characters who I also care about. So that, that just felt like a, a, a big sort of right turn out of other stories to land us here. Also, the story is hurt by my lack of involvement in the crew of the Valiant. And, and honestly, I find the bulk of them just to be insufferable. Even the Vulcan among them can't logic them into a better way of doing things because the guy doesn't speak, <laughs> you know? It was a challenge a couple of weeks ago when we struggled over Cisco's decisions 
in that case, he had his back against the wall, he was feeling enormous pressure, and he compromised himself to do something that he knew was wrong, and then tried to reconcile those consequences. But now we have a ship full of Starfleet cadets who are just completely detached from the reality of their situation and the consequences of their actions. They're all acting like sociopaths. And I, I again, I can have some sympathy for the fact that they have been beaten down into that. But what we have is just a picture of where they are now. And another thing, this episode suffers from wildly inconsistent acting and wildly inconsistent special effects. I know we always try to put those things into context when it comes to production value, but DS, uh, DS9 pretty consistently knocks it out of the park. This was not one of those episodes. So this is a pass for me. I cannot recommend this one. It's not one that I feel like going back to watch over and over again. But that leads us to morals, meanings. Did we get a message out of this? What about you, Norm? What did you learn? Well, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said, and I, I can't really recommend it or not recommend it because I do think that there is actually a very good meaning buried in all of this episode. Mm. And I'm going to take a little bit of a twist on the old adage of pride goeth before a fall. And it reminded me of this, this passage that I've actually referenced from another series that, uh, that is part of my upper echelon mm -hmm. of series uh, that I love. And this passage is from the Book of Mencius, who was a Chinese philosopher who studied and expounded upon Confucius's teachings. And I quote, Life is something that I desire, but there is something that I desire more than life, and so I will not be unscrupulous in pursuing life. Death is something that I hate, but there is something that I hate more than death, and so there are perils that I will not avoid. If it were such that there was nothing that one desired more than life, then... If there were some means that would help one continue living, what would one not use? If it were such that there was nothing that one hated more than death, then if there were some means that would help one avoid peril, what would one not do? And this just kind of, you know, cascades into the age-old argument of heroism versus pragmatism mm -hmm. of choosing death before dishonor. So the issue here lies with a very young and inexperienced captain in training. This is Waters. Yeah. And his even more inexperienced and green first officer, Ferris, Oof. who will now never actually have the chance to experience a life and a career that an EXO would offer, which is at times vital to a captain's command ability. Without that maturity, then what is left is seen as clear as glass in this episode, and it's this predominant attitude that the arrogance of youth must be tempered with and harnessed by age and experience. We kind of mentioned that before, mm -hmm. at least, you know, glibly so. <laughs> right, yes. However, if a group of susceptible and malleable minds, especially those who are treated as, especially as Red Squad is treated, if they are given every opportunity to succeed, then what, challenge, what challenges are they faced with that will provide them those life-changing experience to teach them those valuable lessons? Mm. Perhaps Waters should never have been captain. Perhaps he would have been a great 
career long XO, mm. like Riker, yeah. for a while. Yeah. Perhaps Ferris, who had a knack for engineering, should never have been in command. Maybe she would have been an incredible chief engineer. She had a knack for it. Mm-hmm. However, the whole aspect of Red Squad being the best at all costs, is this what Starfleet wants? I'm going to say no. <laughs> they shouldn't. And this is where I, I find the, the newer Star Trek iterations of some of our favorite characters a little bit more interesting because mm. in, in 2009, this is how they wrote James T. Kirk. Mm. Originally in TOS, especially in Where No Man Has Gone Before, Gary Mitchell described Kirk as a stack of books with legs. Yeah. Kirk, was a bu- Kirk was a bookworm. You know, he was a well-studied cadet. Yes, we know about his exploits with the Kobayashi Maru scenario, but not until 2009, you know, was it twisted in a way where it made him a little bit more, what's the word, rebellious. Yeah, right, right. And in The Wrath of Khan, it was, it was, uh, he got an accommodation for, or a commendation for original thinking. Yeah. But see the difference. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the tone of that is very different, yeah. This raw and reckless, untempered ambition that was more at play to define Kirk, that's, that's seen in waters. Mm-hmm. But that kind of attitude can only take you so far, especially when you reflect on the fact that he was the cause of 33 out of 34 elite, expertly trained Starfleet's best and brightest. They died because of his command decisions or lack of training, right or wrong. And just think. I mentioned this earlier about who's going to write up those reports on their deaths. Mm -hmm. These 33 elite students will never be able to fulfill their truest potentials of their lives. Just think how Starfleet could have benefited from those leaders. Possible future Captain Kirk's or Captain Janeway's or Cisco's, you know, Mm -hmm. or archers, diplomats, engineers, doctors, scientists, all that future potential gone to waste. Why? So in many ways, I wish that Waters did survive the mission so that he would have to deal with the repercussions of his actions, much like Decker did after having lost his crew to the Doomsday Machine. Yeah. There is no fourth planet. Don't you think I know that? <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that's, it's corny when you think about it now, but what he was dealing with is that it broke him to the point of insanity. Yeah, but that's not what I want for Waters. Oh, but see, that, that's the thing. The, the, then Waters isn't a use to anybody after that, mm-hmm. you know? So if he survives and nobody else does, uh, he, he can't take a command again. He never will. He'll, he'll be useless just like Decker was or is. Perhaps, mm-hmm. perhaps that experience would have, it would have informed him of if he ever had a second chance yeah. of what not to do next. Or think about his career differently in Starfleet, even if he wanted to continue his career. Because it's like the Kobayashi Ryu scenario again. Like, he has to deal with how that test of character will inform his decisions as a person. The way that Savick asked, what good is a test if there's no way to win? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm certainly on the same page with you there. And, and you know, I think part of the tragedy here is that the survivor is Dorian Collins. And she survived in totally the wrong frame of mind. I'm, I'm going to get to that here in a second. You know, so that, that survival is uh, that there was nothing learned from any of that. And that brings me to my question. Does anybody learn anything here? Well, Jake was on to what was happening right from the beginning. 
So that he's solid. The crew of the Valiant were just ready to die for a dear leader regardless. And poor Dorian, that is where we're left at the end of this episode. She is holding on to her adoration for Waters, even as she lays there in sickbay after all of her crewmates are dead, which, to be fair, she needs a way to justify what she's just been through. So maybe this is a realistic reaction, um, but only up to a point. Nog is swept up in the promise of advancement and being appreciated at work. Uh, he's also completely bought into the cult of the Valiant. And that serves as a firm enough warning to anyone in a similar situation. It's easy to compromise what you know is right when your ego is being stroked. I'm a little disturbed by Nog's closing line to Dorian. I, I, I think it's terrible. <laughs> and, and I don't think they intended it to be. But he, he says he may have been a hero, he may have even been a great man, but in the end, he was a bad captain. I think he failed at all of those, period. And at some point, Dorian needs to clue into that. I, I think Waters is a failure in so many ways. And, and again, I, I can understand the intention with a line like that, whether we're talking in-universe, or we're talking the production reality of writing a line like that to end the episode. But I think it's a terrible sentiment, if you really think about it. When we sum up Waters and his experience in the Valley, and I'm reminded a little bit of Yoda here, saying wars not make one great. I really, really dislike Waters. And at the same time, if we try to find a little sympathy for him, it's that he has absorbed this twisted notion that his personal value is in acting the hero and outmaneuvering the enemy. And it's incredibly two-dimensional. It's just blind adherence to these ideas about war and ideas about heroism. And it's what leads to his completely reckless behavior that then endangers and kills the people around him. And about those people, those poor people on the Valiant and what their story says to us. There are a lot of powerful, motivating tools at the disposal of the people who would manipulate us to a cause. And maybe somewhere deep down in there is a shred of sincerity or even nobility in that cause. The problem is, if we don't stop to question every element of those actions, we can very easily be led to commit terrible acts, to put ourselves and others in jeopardy, and to ultimately sacrifice for nothing. As humans, we're easy to manipulate, and we can be rallied to any cause, just or unjust. If we don't stop and ask ourselves and ask what we're really doing, and if our faith in a person or a cause is truly justified. Now, one easy way to find out is by judging the reaction when you start asking questions about those very things. So we have to put our trust and bravery in a cause, but we also have to have bravery in keeping those in power accountable. I need to ask you one last question, though, John. Please do. Just to wrap this up, do you think that we are expecting too much from these characters in Red Squad? After all, the way that I saw them, the way that they behaved, it almost is as if they are trying to pass the next exam. They're trying to achieve the next grade. They're trying to get the next best mark. They're trying to 
to to overcome that next hurdle so that they get the A on the report card. That's how I felt about every single way that they behaved. Never once did I think that they realized that that final battleship, like it's like the end of Ender's Game. They didn't realize that this thing was real, right? They yeah. thought it was a pass or fail test, and they failed. Yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, that that's not why my estimation of this episode is lower than maybe some other people's would be. And and, and that's fine. You know, if other, other people uh, love and appreciate this episode, that's great. I think the way you're describing it there is perfectly acceptable and perfectly accurate that these poor cadets didn't understand the reality of the situation in front of them. They did just see it as the next test or the next opportunity to excel at what they were learning or what they had learned, you know, eight months before when they were back at the academy. But this episode then reveals this horrible dark streak through all of that where maybe they weren't learning the right things. And maybe you got 34 people together who were incapable of learning the right things and incapable of carrying out commands with empathy and understanding and an actual care for the big picture and a care for the people around them. That is such a tragedy here is that nobody was putting the safety of their fellow crew into their own hands. It was just purely about this unobtainable, completely ambiguous idea of glory and heroism, which in the end added up to nothing. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Profit and Lace. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Is your replicator making incomplete sandwiches because someone used up all the matter stores to make pins? Time to join Bread Squad. Bread Squad. Bread Squad. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.